Hey there. Do you want to help me out with future episodes? Over on PeteBrownSays.com, there's a link called Submit. Every few weeks, there's a new prompt there, and you can submit short stories of your own in response. There's a button right on the page. You click it, and you can record a reply right there using your computer or your phone, and it gets sent right to me. It's all anonymous, and I'd love to hear your stories. Just head to PeteBrownSays.com and click Submit. Hey everybody, today's show is brought to you by Hoopsters, a basketball-themed board game only available at hoopsters.store. I like playing board games because it gives me a chance to connect with my kids or my friends, and for me, the best games are a lot of fun, but they're easy to learn, right? I don't like checking the rules on the inside of the box lid every other move. Great games require some strategy, but also a little bit of luck, and they don't take forever to complete a game. I'm not a fan of those five-hour Monopoly sessions. So I can tell you firsthand that Hoopsters is all of these things. You can play a quick game in 15 minutes or longer one in 30. It brings all of the thrill of basketball together with the strategy of backgammon. And I just can't tell you enough about how much fun it is. Each set is handcrafted here in Central Ohio, so head to hoopsters.store, and if there aren't any sets available, you can drop in your email address and we'll let you know as soon as we have some more. That's hoopsters.store. Now on to the show. Shall we begin? Welcome at long last, everyone, to Season 2. Apologies for the delay in getting this season out there. Sometimes life's gotta do what life's gotta do. I'm planning another 10 or so episodes this season, coming out about every other week. Bonus and mini-episodes are also part of the plan. As always, these stories are written to the very best of my memory, and I hope you'll find in each something to love. Our first episode's about something that you don't do very much in your childhood, but then about middle school, you start to do a little bit more, a little bit more. Your teenage years and college years, you probably peak, and then as you become an adult, uh, you slowly phase this behavior out. It does seem to be a gesture that always has some sort of story attached to it. And in this episode, that's what I'm exploring. So let's get on to our first episode of Season 2, Flippin' the Bird. Flippin' the Bird. I'm taking an improv class now. I know, I know it's the trendy thing to do, but I'm taking it with my wife and we're having fun with it, even if we're the oldest ones in the class. One thing that's fascinated me so far about improv is this. It doesn't really lend itself to set-up punchline humor, which is generally my bailiwick. But when you're doing a scene with fellow improvisers, if you try to set up and then pay off with a punchline, you might get a laugh, but then you're just stuck in the scene with nowhere to go. You better hope that another member of the troupe can bail you out. I found this a fascinating detail about humor, and as I thought about it, it made me wonder about a very basic question. Why is improv funny? And when I asked this question to our teacher, he told me, after the requisite, you're going to ask 100 improvisers and get 100 different answers to this question, he told me that the humor derives from real moments of genuine human connection between well-formed characters. We've been working on how to get into detailed characters quickly in improv lately so the answer lined up with what we'd been learning. I was listening to a podcast by the improviser Jimmy Curran, and he put it this way, you have to be real before you can be funny. I was a creative writing major in my undergrad, and I have to admit, when I made this my major my sophomore year, I totally thought I'd be taking classes like Plots 101 and 100 Ways Someone Can Murder Someone in Your Story, 
And while there may be classes like that somewhere, at my university, I soon learned, we studied literary short fiction. And if I was to do my years of study the disservice of boiling it down to one takeaway, it would be to let your stories be derived from character. In other words, instead of worrying about the plot or how it's going to end, channel your imagination and deep contemplation into the creation of complex characters and see where they lead you and what kind of questions their interactions pose, which is kind of what my improv teacher was talking about. He also talks about supporting each other in a scene, which is another of my struggles. Last week, we were doing an abstract exercise in which the class stood in a circle, and one person initiated an action by making a gesture and saying a two-syllable word. That's the kind of stuff you do in improv class. Now, if he or she looked at you when they did this, your job was to replicate what they did as closely as possible, but looking at someone else. And as the move makes its way around the circle, it changes slightly, over and over, until it ends up someplace totally different. It was like a game of telephone, but with gestures. And you're supposed to treat each gesture given to you as a gift. A guy named Josh started us off by saying, Super! And while he did this, he lifted his hand up with his index finger pointing at the ceiling. This got passed around the circle for a while when I had this thought. Hey, I could change this from the index finger to the middle finger. And then everybody would have to give everybody else the finger. For some reason, I thought this would be really funny. Now, I'm not big on giving the finger, as this episode will explore. But, as a youngest child, I am big on breaking rules. Still, this was only my third class with this group, and I didn't really feel like I was in a place with any of them where I could give them the finger. But my wife of 23 years? That was another story. Now, I don't really want to give my wife the finger. I've never done it in 23 years, and I can't imagine that I ever would. She has given me the finger on more than a handful of occasions, but in general, when I reflect on these instances, I was likely being exceptionally obtuse about something. My wife, too, is an oldest child, and in general, a much better rule follower than me. And so, it further occurred to me that if I simply changed one finger in the movement, and thus gave her the finger, not only would she have to turn and pass it on to someone else, if she was following the rules of the game, she'd have to treat my giving her the finger as a gift. And I just don't think the universe gives you that kind of opportunity very often. What would happen if I did it? Would the blowback be intense? Would I be in the doghouse, my second home, by the way? Were we destined to drive back to our suburb 20 minutes away in icy silence? Should I? I called you out in front of everybody. I laughed really hard, and then I yelled, Pete gave me the bird. I wasn't passing that on. Yes, I did it. I was surprised. And while it was really funny, my wife laughed, most of the class laughed about it. I did think it was funny, but I was surprised that you were did something so extroverted. It did end up pretty much derailing the game we were playing, and we had to do a restart. I ended up apologizing to the ensemble, and the finger incident, as it has become known, has come up in each subsequent class, often like this. The teacher will ask a question about our roles in a scene. And then someone will give an improv answer about supporting each other. You bring a brick, they bring a brick, and you build something together. Then someone else in the class will go, Yeah, but what about that time Pete gave his wife the finger? 
I honestly don't think that's a legit question, by the way. I think they just want to bring up the finger incident again. The reason that I don't give the finger to people is that I'm not a great driver. And driving, it seems, is the one activity in which there is an increased likelihood of finger giving and finger receiving for adults. We've grown out of the middle school and teenage years when giving our friends the finger seemed to be more of a regular occurrence. We're grown-ups now. We go to parties that have start times and end times on the invitation, and we use I statements when working through differences with our kids. I feel hurt when you give me the finger, for example. Now, I want to tell you that I don't think I'm a terrible driver, but I'm an honest, and honestly, sometimes I get lost in my head thinking about something, and I forget where I'm going. Or I fail to check in all directions, and I might cut someone off or something. I suspect we all do this to some extent, which is to say I don't think I make mistakes driving any more or any less than the next guy, even if he won't admit it. But there certainly are those people, and, and maybe some of you listening, who secretly consider themselves God's gift to driving. And as God's appointed ambassador on earth for driving, these people feel it's incumbent on themselves to point out or try to correct everyone else's driving mistakes. You can sniff these people out, by the way, if they say something like, Nobody in name of my city knows how to fucking drive. They're the kind of people that'll pull up next to you at a red light and roll down their window and tell you something you did wrong. Or use their finger to write, Learn to park in the dirt on the back window of your car. I have a theory about the kind of person who feels the need to correct other people's driving. I secretly believe they're all just frustrated engineers, people who implicitly understand how a system of traffic is supposed to work, and, fed up with the imprecise world, have to direct their rage at those of us who cut corners, sometimes literally, with beeps and shouts and yes, on occasion, when warranted, middle fingers. I also secretly suspect, and I have no evidence for this, but I suspect that most of these very vocal of drivers are also our worst drivers, and that they stay on offense to cover up their own shitty driving. There's a saying I learned when I lived in Russia, Pustaya bochka pichi gremet, which roughly translates to an empty vessel makes the most noise. Although I've since learned, by the way, that this is commonly attributed to Plato. I've always taken it to mean that the people with the least amount to say, the empty vessels, the least amount of substance to offer, are also the ones talking the loudest and most frequently. It's definitely true in politics, and quite often in corporate life. Perhaps it rings true for driving as well. In any case, I've always felt that we as a society need to create a simple hand gesture that means, my fault, sorry, you know, kind of a my bad. In sports, athletes do this by patting on their chest with an open palm and saying, that's on me, people, on me. But unfortunately, that sign doesn't work when you're driving because no one can see it. I'd love it if I had a button on my dash that makes the words, my bad, so sorry, light up on the back of my car. I think a lot of middle fingers would go unflipped if an angry, wrong driver saw that I recognized the mistake I made and that I was sorry for it. Then again, my insurance company might track how many times I press the button and then use that information to determine my rate, hashtag conspiracy theory. I mentioned that my wife has given me the finger on a number of occasions. If she gets cut off or someone drives unsafely near her, she'll give that car the finger. But she does it under the dash where no one can see it. Which I suppose is a good system if you need to do something with your anger. When I get cut off, I try not to be angry about it. Because, you know, 
karma and what goes around comes around and all that. But say I need to get three lanes over to an exit lane and no one in any of those lanes seems inclined to let me in, I'll definitely swear off a blue streak, which tends to surprise my kids. But I always stop short of giving the finger. Once, I accidentally cut someone off in a parking lot, and I earned a loud horn blast because of it. Not even an angry blast. More of a, you're about to hit me kind of blast. And then, he pulled up alongside of me at the next light. I locked my doors, and prepared to bear some verbal abuse. But, he just gave me a look, and then he held up his two fingers in a peace sign. I really liked this, because I was clearly wrong, and he was clearly mad, but he was able to make a gesture that somehow acknowledged that something had passed between us, but in the great scheme of things, it wasn't the end of the world, and we could part in peace to do better by our fellow humans. If only that were always the case. Have you ever cut someone off or made a similarly bad driving move and then had them stuck behind you, or worse, pull up alongside you at a light? About two years ago, I made a rolling right turn at a four-way stop and didn't realize that the cargo van with a ladder on top, positioned opposite my turn, had already started on into the intersection. I was already committed when I did realize this, so I punched the gas and pushed on through ahead of him. Not great, right? But not the end of the world, but not great. But man, this guy was hot about it. He was a 20-something ginger, and he was screaming at me laying on the horn and holding up a constant middle finger out of his window as we drove on down the road. I could see his face getting redder and redder in my rearview mirror. I'm talking true road rage here, certainly way above and beyond what my transgression would seem to call for. What's worse, we were on a two-lane road, one lane in each direction, and he kept darting into the opposite lane into oncoming traffic, attempting to catch up and pull alongside me. I don't know what he wanted to do, run me off the road, scream at me through his window, take a shot at me. Those all seemed possible, given his state. I remember stuff like this happening a lot when I was in high school. My posse of peeps would be leaving a concert or a football game or even the movies, and another posse of juiced-up boys would see us, and there might be some posturing, and quite often a middle finger or two would get thrown, and there'd be a fight or it would kick off some sort of insane car chase around the western suburbs. One time, when my friend Chumley was driving, Four dudes in a Ford Escort, a Ford Escort of all things, came after us because they thought someone in our group had given them the finger. We hadn't, by the way. But have you ever gotten a vibe from a group that they didn't really care about what actually happened because, really, they just wanted to fight? That's the vibe this group gave off. In spades. I remember them pulling alongside us at one point, and a little dude in the back leaning out the window and brandishing a tire iron. But it wasn't a long, skinny tire iron, the kind that you could swing like a bat. It was... One of those shaped like a cross, with two short rods welded together in the middle. Certainly could do some damage, but it also looked kind of difficult to wield as a weapon. That chase was a long and dangerous one, and went on and off the highway and hit some incredible speeds before the Ford Escort assassins decided to move on to some other dismal goal in their shitty lives. And I was there when my friend Chumley told his dad about it. That certainly wouldn't have been my choice, by the way telling my dad, but Chumley seemed to get along well with his dad, well enough for this kind of conversation anyway. And Chumley's dad, I remember, just took the cigar out of his mouth and he said, if that ever happens again, just drive to a police station. Ah oh, man. That would have made things way easier. And I think of Chumley's dad telling us this often, and in fact, 
thought of him that very day two years ago when the irate ginger in a contractor's van seemed hell-bent on doing me ill. I drove to the police station, which was not far away, and I pulled in and parked. And Ginger Joe, well, he gave me one last middle finger and kept on rolling by. So, if you happen to be a kid listening to this podcast, first of all, welcome, happy face emoji, thumbs up emoji, raise the roof hands emoji. And second of all, if this ever happens to you, remember to drive to a police station. Now, my crew in high school was a pretty sociable bunch. We never looked for fights. The worst that you could claim of us was that we were we were more of the smashing pumpkins, TP your house kind of yahoos. Which is why I was so perplexed one Sunday morning during my sophomore year of high school when my parents told me as I poured a bowl of Cheerios that my friends had smashed out the windows in our car overnight. Yeah, right, I said. Really, my mom insisted. Dad saw them through the window. Knock it off, I said. It's not funny. Go see for yourself, my dad said. So I put my spoon down, and I walked out to our driveway, where our faux wood-paneled station wagon was parked, and indeed, the back and rear side windows had been smashed out. I was dumbstruck at this moment. Why would my friends do this? Had I done something? Had I somehow wronged someone so badly that this was an acceptable retaliation? I mean, it was an unsettling feeling for a kid to have. Who did my dad see? And through what window? I mean, as far as I knew, none of our windows provided a view of the driveway. So I was pretty riled up when I walked back inside and said, I don't know who you think you saw, but my friends wouldn't do this. I actually think said is a little too tame here. It's likely that it came out in that slightly shouty, clipped voice I have when I'm trying and failing to hold in a wave of anger. It was enough for my parents to drop their charade, which they thought was hilarious, by the way and tell me what really happened, which is that my sisters and their friends, who had taken the car to a concert the previous night, at a venue that sat pretty much in the middle of a cornfield well south of town. And after the concert, while slowly waiting in the inevitable line of bumper-to-bumper traffic that forms between the venue and the highway, they got entangled in an imbroglio with the car behind them, an occupant of which got out with a tire iron in hand, the long skinny kind you can swing like a bat, by the way, and smashed the back rear side windows, both of which were situated around the way, way back of the station wagon, where the third row seat faced backwards, and where two people sat, one of whom, as it turns out, had given the finger to the car behind them. Those are the highlights of the story, as relayed to me by my parents, and for the record, my sisters and their friends all came through this business okay. I know that there's more to this story. I think there's some stuff involving a flung can of beer and some beat-up boyfriends but I'm not going to get into it, nor do I have it in me to call up my sisters and ask, because surely they would chew me out just for bringing it up. So I'm sharing what I remember of this story, which may not be 100% accurate, and I'm doing it in more of an ask-forgiveness-rather-than-permission kind of way. Although I do wonder if the occupants of that way, way back of the station wagon learned a lesson that night about flipping the bird, or if it was something they continued to do in their lives. I, too, learned a lesson about flipping the bird the hard way, but a few years before my sister had. I'm thinking I was somewhere in the middle school years when this happened, 6th or 7th grade. I had two buddies in my neighborhood, Sean and Bunky, and we played a lot of backyard football and driveway baseball and just about any sport you can imagine. We even invented a sport called roofball, which was a kind of volleyball where you bopped one of those bouncy rubber footballs onto Sean's garage roof 
and then the other player had to bop it back up there when it came down. It was a pretty fun game, now that I think about it. We also had a neighborhood swimming pool at the end of our street, an indoor pool, which I'm now recognizing as quite nice, and I'm appreciating in this moment far more than I did when I was a kid. Sean and I had gone to the pool and were walking back home on a chilly gray day in the fall. It seemed most of the leaves were down, but hadn't yet been raked back up. A middle-of-the-week kind of day, glazed with cold raindrops and the prospect of snow. As we walked, we heard someone calling out to Sean from across the street and behind us, and we turned and saw two kids Sean knew from school. Sean and I didn't go to the same school, by the way. I attended a Catholic school in the next town over, so I only kind of knew who these two kids were. There was a tall, bigger kid that we'll call Seymour, and a short and feisty sidekick of his that we'll call Scotty. For whatever reason, after they called to us, Sean said to me, Just keep walking. So we did, and they called out again, Hey! Hey! And so, in response, I lifted up my arm and I gave them the finger, without even doing them the dignity of turning around to look them in the eye when I did it. It was a walk-off, going-away reverse finger, if you know what I mean. And I don't know why I did it. To this day, I have no idea what they were calling out to us for, or why I felt like this would be an acceptable response. I only know that a few seconds later, I heard heavy, rapid footsteps crossing the street behind me, and I turned and saw them charging after us. So naturally, I ran. Sean didn't run, and they sped right on past him and caught up to me a few driveways down. Scotty leapt onto my back, and I ducked and rolled him over onto the concrete apron. But before I could reset myself, before I could even try apologizing or working out some solution to our problem, Seymour, much bigger than me, Seymour grabbed me from behind, pinning both of my arms behind my back. If you ever had this done to you, you know exactly what I'm talking about. And if you haven't had this done to you, then count your blessings. Seymour pinned my arms behind my back, and then Scotty stood up and brushed himself off, and he socked me good right in the mouth. Have you ever taken a punch in the mouth? I'm talking a direct, bare-knuckle punch with real malice behind it. What you remember most is not the pain of it but the sound, that hard clank of bone on bone that rings out from inside your head, it grabs your attention pretty quickly and clearly. I managed to wrestle free of Seymour after this punch, and I picked up my gym bag and swung it wildly at Scotty to keep him at bay. And in the back of my mind, in the corner of my eye, I registered an old man's voice shouting, Knock that off! And I turned towards the voice. And an older man, I'd say, retirement age at least, it was coming out of his doorway. I remember his knee-length camel hair coat and one of those dude caps, the kind that Samuel L. Jackson wears backwards, but he wasn't wearing it backwards. I think they're also called newsboy caps. But that's what he was wearing, and he was yelling at Seymour, What'd you do that for? And I remember Seymour, big old Seymour, sticking his hands in his back pockets and yelling back, He flipped us the bird! He did what? The old man yelled. He flipped us the bird! Seymour yelled. The what? And in answer to this, Seymour flipped the bird at him and said, You know, the bird. I didn't stick out to see how this debate would go. I trotted away down the street, towards my house, looking over my shoulder once to see Seymour and Scotty crossing back over to the other side of the street and walking away. And then, in the far distance, my friend Sean, just walking along. He had stopped and watched the fight from a few driveways back, but I guess, and I've never asked him about this, I guess he assumed, Hey, I made my bed so I was the one who had to sleep in it. I went straight up to my room when I got home. I didn't tell my parents, and the bruise on my jaw wasn't too noticeable. 
it's very likely that I just buried my nose in a book and tried to forget the whole thing had ever happened. But around 8.30 that night, my parents called me to come to the phone. Uh, any millennials who are listening, uh, first of all, I'm glad you're still with me. Praise emoji. Um, but back in the day, it wasn't uncommon for a house to only have one or two landlines installed. And you, you actually had to lease the phone from the phone company. So ours was in the kitchen. It was an orange rotary mounted on the wall near the calendar. And you physically had to go to that room to answer it. And once you did, you could only walk as far away as the cord attached to the handset would let you go. So I picked up the handset and said, hello. A voice said, let's go get them. It was my friend Bunky, who had heard about the incident from Sean, and who was not going to let it pass. Who? I asked. Seymour, he replied. Scotty, I know where they live. They're not getting away with this. Bunky was Italian, by the way. At the time, he wore an Italian horn around his neck, like Rocky, a movie which he and I watched together, I'm not kidding here, 25 or 30 times. After I hesitated for a moment, he said, Look, just grab a hammer and meet me at my house. A hammer? Jesus, just come on, Peter, he said. We gotta make this right. By the way, he's one of my few friends who ever called me Peter. I generally go by Pete with my friends. My sisters call me Peter, maybe that's why. But also, uh, I'm one of the few people left in the world who still calls him Bunky. Now, I want to tell you how this line hit me. We're going to make this right. Because it hit me hard, like a punch to the mouth. And it was a feeling of, of just total and utter support. It was something my improv teacher might call a moment of genuine human connection. Bunky didn't care that I had set this thing in motion by flipping the bird. That didn't bother him one tiny bit. All he cared about was that his friend got a little throttled by two other kids, and that was just not okay by him. I think we can let it go, I said. I mean, it was kind of my fault to begin with. Don't, he said. Come on. Really? It's okay, I said. And then I added, do you want to go rent Rocky? Uh, millennials, again, you used to have to go to a physical store to rent movies, which were available on big plastic VHS tapes. Netflix wasn't even a thing yet. After a long moment in which I assume he was thinking about this, he finally exhaled and said, All right. But then he added, But I wish I'd been there, you know? I just wish I'd been there. I know it, I told him. But really, everything's fine. And after that, it's likely we hoofed up the street to Movie Madness and we rented Rocky on VHS. We probably bought some pops at Minotti's and then headed back to one of our homes to watch it. The night of that phone call was probably the peak of my friendship with Bunky. He moved out of the neighborhood shortly after that after which we remained pretty much okay friends. As I mentioned, he worked hard to phase out the nickname Bunky around that time, and so most people only know him now as Brian. In high school, we drifted into different groups of friends, but we often saw each other at parties and games and events and stuff, and we're always still friendly, if not close friends anymore. So when I say that night was the peak of my friendship with Bunky, I think what I mean is that it was the peak of my childhood. Thereafter, I had stepped into a world with real consequences for your actions. I went on to wrestle through the complications of puberty, the mystery of girls, and the cage match that is middle school. And just as I think of Chumley's dad telling us to drive to the police station, I often think of this phone call with Bunky when I'm trying my best to support someone with whatever it is they're dealing with. A lost job a car accident, cancer, grief, 
being married to me. You know, traumas. I think of picking up the phone and hearing those words, so devoid of context, yet somehow perfectly on point. Let's go get them. Just come on. Let's go get them. And off into the world we go, vigilantes on ten speeds, roaming the western suburbs of Cleveland with naught but vengeance on our minds. And also, a hammer? What the f***, right? I mean, I'm glad I never landed on Bunky's bad side. That's all I'm saying. Brown says is a work of creative nonfiction audio written and produced by me, Pete Brown, and is the property of Blue Monkey Communications. The show is written to the best of my memory. At times, names, timelines, and events have been changed, though I will try to let you know when that is happening. You can learn more about the basketball-themed board game Hoopsters at hoopsters.store. You can follow the show on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, all at Pete Brown Says and submit a story of your own or sign up for the newsletter at PeteBrownSays.com. There's also a link there to buy me a cup of coffee if you want to help cover production expenses. If you like the show, please tell a friend about it. I'm growing an audience one listener at a time, and your help is crucial to that effort. Music and sound effects in this episode have been sourced and licensed from the websites Audionautics.com, Freesound.org, and PodcastMusic.com. The opening music is by Brian Hake, and some interstitials are by Kevin Davison. Their now-defunct band Delicious performs the show's theme song, I'm Not Myself. We'll be back with a new episode in just a few weeks. Until then, and as always, good times, everyone. Good times. Good times.